So you say to your kids, guess what? Next Saturday, we're going to go to Great to Six Flags. And they're all excited about that. They say, yes, we're going to Six Flags. And it's because you love them and you want to spend time with them and you want to make memories with them uh, that you want to bestow uh, this wonderful blessing on them. But then on Wednesday, they're sitting at the kitchen table and they won't eat their peas and carrots. And they throw a temper tantrum because you will not let them get up from the kitchen table until you eat your peas and carrots. And then you get so frustrated with them and you say, you know what, we're not going to Six Flags. Forget about it. We're not going. And then your kids say, Dad, you promised. That was a promise. You didn't say anything about obeying peas and carrots laws before you made the promise. And they're devastated that you have withdrawn, revoked your promise that was not based on anything that they had to do. And they called you out on it, and they were right, weren't they? Your promise was unconditional, but now you've revoked your promise because of their bad behavior. You've added conditions to the promise that weren't there when you first made the promise. And your kids were astute enough to call you out on it. They, don't, they, they know the difference between law and grace, even though they might not put those particular words to it. They know what the difference between law and grace is. Grace is the promise to go to Six Flags. Uh, and, and since there were no conditions on that promise, it's unfair to revoke that for any reason. And law is punishing them for not eating their peas and carrots and for them throwing the temper tantrum. Now, you'd like for them eat to eat their peas and carrots and not to throw a temper tantrum, but the fact that they threw a temper tantrum should not invalidate uh, the promise that you made to them to take them to Six Flags beforehand. And that's what Paul's talking about in our passage today. Uh, his argument in verses 15 to 25 is that the giving of the law, which came later, did not revoke, did not nullify, did not invalidate, did not terminate God's grace, his prior promises. So God made an unconditional promise to Abraham. Before the law, he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, land, seed, blessings, and, and through you and your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That was God's promise to Abraham. And God doesn't revoke, change, or add conditions to his promises. They are eternal. They are everlasting. They can be trusted. And even though God added the law later, he did not nullify the promise that was still in effect. So that's what we're talking about today, that, that God's promises do not get interrupted just because he added the law later. And I just want us to spend a couple minutes uh, kind of remembering where we are in Galatians since I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and then the week before that we preached a special message on baptism. So it's been about a month now since we've been in uh, Galatians. So uh, let's just remember that uh, Paul and Barnabas were traveling through Galatia. That's the, the uppermost part of your slide there, uh, the regions of Galatia. Uh, and they spread the gospel uh, throughout these regions, uh, saying that, that uh, Jesus Christ died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And they spread that gospel and they said that all who believe in Jesus alone for salvation will be saved. And, and the Galatians believed the gospel and they were saved. That's why uh, Paul calls them brethren in this passage, uh, because they are brothers. Uh, Paul established churches throughout these regions at Lystra, Derby, uh, Pisidian Antioch, uh, other places, in, and he left elders in charge there, and then he returned back to his home church in Antioch. But after that, the Judaizers came in, right? The Judaizers are, are Jews who said you have to believe in Jesus to be saved and, and you have to keep the law. And so Paul was horrified when he heard about the Judaizers' distortion of the truth of the gospel because 
the gospel and grace is God's free gift to us. It's unconditional. It's not based on the law or anything else that we do. It's all about God and his promises and what God promises to do. <clears throat> so Paul was in a battle with these Judaizers for the Galatians' loyalty, but also for their very souls. That's what was at stake here. And so uh, what happened was that uh, he's hearing this, this news and he says, I have to write a letter to the Galatians. And so immediately, right out of the box, he comes out firing in chapters one and two. And he knows that the, Galatian, or that the Judaizers are questioning his teaching and they're questioning his authority. And so Paul immediately comes out and establishes his authority. He says that his authority was received by Jesus Christ himself, a, a direct commission. So it was received by revelation, which the Judaizers could not claim. It was recognized by the church when, when Paul went to Jerusalem. The apostles recognized his authority. And then Paul used this authority to rebuke Peter when he uh, refused to eat with the Gentiles when formerly he had. So Paul's authority is better than the Judaizers. And now having established his authority, he lays down the gospel in Galatians 2.16. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So that takes us through chapter 2. Now in chapters 3 and 4... Uh, we said that Paul presented seven different proofs <clears throat> that the gospel is by faith and not by works. And these are the proofs. The Galatians' experience proves the truth of the gospel. Abraham was justified by faith and not by works of the law. God promised salvation with a covenant before he gave the law. The purpose of the law was not to save. Uh, those with faith are sons and heirs. Rituals of the law are futile towards salvation. And then lastly, the allegory of Sarah and Hagar proves that salvation is by faith and not work. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've covered the first and second proofs. The Galatian experience is by receiving the Holy Spirit. He says, remember Galatians, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? It was by faith. How did you begin your Christian journey? It was by faith. Uh, how did you experience miracles? It was by faith. Uh, none of this was by keeping the works of the law. And so salvation is by faith, period. And the Galatians' own experience proved that. And secondly, we saw that the second uh, proof is that Abraham, who was the father of Israel, was justified how? By faith, right? Not by keeping the law. The law didn't exist yet. It was still centuries in the future. And it didn't come by circumcision because circumcision was years after God justified Abraham by faith. So Abraham's justification by faith before the law and circumcision proves that God doesn't justify on the basis of law. He justifies on the basis of faith. And now this week we're going to look at the third and fourth proofs. God promised salvation with an uncon unconditional covenant before he gave the law. That's verses 15 to 18. And the Judaizers misunderstood the purpose of the law. It was not to save, but to convict and to show people their need for a savior. We'll see that in verses 19 to 25. So first, God promised salvation with a covenant before he gave the law. Brothers and sisters, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as one would in referring to many, but rather as in referring to one and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant personally or previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise, 
but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, we can understand the Judaizers' point, I think, a little bit. They're saying, look, the law came after Abraham, so that means the law must change what God promised to Abraham uh, years ago. Uh, and Paul is saying, no, that's not what happened. The Judaizers are arguing as though the new law revoked the old promises or that God was adding conditions now to the promise. It used to be grace, but now it's grace plus obedience to the law. And Paul is saying, no, you are misunderstanding God's promises. You're misunderstanding the purpose of the law. And so Paul uses this human illustration from the area of contract law to explain his point. Uh, so this Greek word in verse 15, the word diatheke, which you see up there is the word covenant, uh, that word can mean either covenant as in a contract or it can mean like a last will and testament. Uh, so let's just talk about it in terms of a contract between two parties in the first place. Uh, once two parties enter into a binding contract, only those two parties can change the terms, right? And they have to agree to change the terms. They can't do it unilaterally. So if you enter into a contract to buy a house, and the seller also signs that contract, now you have a binding contract. The seller can't later, a week later, uh, add $100,000 to the purchase price of the house, right? That's illegal uh, because two parties would both need to agree to change the terms of the contract because they're bound by its terms. And if Paul was talking about a will rather than a contract, well, uh, when you make a last will and testament, who has the power to change the last will and testament? Well, only the person who makes the last will and testament, right? Oftentimes, your kids might like to change the terms of your last will and testament if they've, not been, if they've been naughty instead of nice. But no, only, the, only the, the person who makes the will has the ability to change its terms. <clears throat> so Paul's argument is, look, whoever makes the contracts, whoever makes the will, they are the only ones who have the power to change that contract. And so if that's the case in a human contract, where you bring two sinners together uh, with their own sinful motivations for entering into the contract sometimes, and sometimes with not the greatest intentions of fulfilling their contracts. Uh, if that's true of human contracts, how much more true is it of God when God makes a contract, knowing God's nature and God's character? How much more is he bound by the, con by the contracts and covenants that he makes? So when God made promises to Abraham, he was the only party bound to fulfill anything in the covenant that he made with Abraham. He promised Abraham land, seed, blessings, uh, descendants more numerous than the sand on the seashore, that people throughout the ages would be, uh, would be blessed through Abraham's descendants. God didn't require anything of Abraham. He just blessed him. And in fact, when God ratified the contract with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was asleep. Do you remember this from, from Genesis chapter 15? God told Abraham to bring a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. Cut these animals in half and lay them on opposite sides of each other. And then God put Abraham in a deep sleep. And while Abraham was asleep, God restated the covenant to Abraham. And God, in the form of a smoking oven and a flaming torch, passed alone through the pieces of the animals. Now, in the ancient Near East, when parties ratified a contract, this is what they would do. They would cut animals in half, and both parties would walk through the pieces of the animal as if to say, may this be done to me and more if I fail to live up to the terms of the contract. That's what they were saying to each other. That was the point of this uh, cutting animals in half ritual. But God 
walks through the animal pieces alone to show that the promises that he made to Abraham were unconditional. He only bound himself to keep these terms of the covenant. That's pretty astounding when you think about it, right? And what did God do afterwards? Did God fulfill his promises to Abraham? Well, he did, yes, at least in part, right? But not in full, at least not in Abraham's lifetime. God gave Abraham descendants, many descendants, but God has still not finished blessing all the families on the earth through Abraham's descendants. And so Paul is arguing that the covenant that God made with Abraham still applies today in the Christian era after Jesus Christ. God's covenant with Abraham has not ended. It, he's, he's still blessing Abraham's seed even today through Jesus Christ. And that's the basic meaning of verse 16, which is a little bit confusing. Uh, Paul used kind of a grammatical nuance when he's talking about this word seed, which can either be a singular or a plural. Uh, here it's, it's what they call a collective singular, uh, a noun which could refer either to multiple descendants or to a single descendant. And so Paul uses this word uh, and he says, look, the, the promises that God made to Abraham are being fulfilled to Abraham's many seeds today, through the one seed, Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And we're going to cover this in greater detail next week, but just to show you that this is so, I want you to look down just a couple verses in, your, uh, in the book of Galatians to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. It says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So through the one seed, the many seeds uh, come. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 24, he said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And so we see this idea of the multiplica multiplication of seeds and the blessing of many seeds through the one seed, Jesus Christ, and one seed produces many more. And so in this way, Paul is arguing, this is how God is still fulfilling his covenant with Abraham even today. Abraham believed God's promises. God counted uh, Abraham's faith as righteousness. Uh, he received the blessings by faith, not by keeping the law. And now that Jesus, the Messiah, has come, God credits righteousness to us by faith in Jesus. Uh, so God always credits righteousness, always credits righteousness by faith. So when you and I heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit worked in us to do this amazing work and we put our faith in Jesus, we became children of Abraham. We are part of the promised uh, sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, too numerous to count. And it was not by keeping the law, it was by faith. And so I imagine uh, God in heaven winking at Abraham every time somebody comes to faith uh, and saying, see Abraham, I am the God who can be trusted. I am fulfilling my promises to you even today and every day. You can trust me. And shouldn't that give us tremendous comfort in this world that seems to be completely off the rails in so many places, right? <clears throat> this world is a mess. And yet God 
is a God who is able to make beauty out of mess. And just look what God has done this past week. Can we talk about what God has done this past week? What an amazing week this was. Roe versus Wade overturned, and the constitutional right to an abortion, which never existed, was never in the Constitution ever, uh, was finally struck down. Praise the Lord for that. That's an incredible, incredible thing that happened this week, right? Give the Lord a hand. Phenomenal, phenomenal that that could happen. Two wins for religious liberty in the Supreme Court this week, right? If you've been paying attention to all the other decisions in the Supreme Court, the state of Maine had a program that excluded religious schools from receiving benefits from the state uh, in cities where, where uh, there were no public schools. They would give benefits to private schools, but not if they were religious. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. If you're offering them to private schools that are non-religious, you have to offer them to the religious schools too. So a huge win uh, for freedom of religion in Maine. And of course, the Supreme Court also ruled in favor of this high school football coach, right, who was fired for praying on the football field. And the Supreme Court said, this man was exercising his right to free speech, and he's allowed to do it. So pray if you want. Uh, and so just praise God. What a week we had. And, and that, that, that's only some of the decisions that, that went the way that we would want them to in a biblical manner uh, this week. Just fantastic. So when it seems like the world can't get any worse, like it's completely off the rails and everything seems hopeless, God shows up and he does incredible miracles. Uh, and so what we see is that nothing can interrupt God's grace. God is always there. He's always giving us his grace. And, and so this is, this is on a national level, right? And this will affect many, many people, of course. But but, you know, none of us in here are likely to, to be fired for praying on a football field or, uh, you know, things like that. But, but in your personal life, like when you are going through hard times, personally, when you get a bad diagnosis, financial devastation, uh, death of a loved one, family conflict, whatever else you face, God is always in that. He's present anyway. And none of the difficulties that you are going through mean that God has invalidated his promises to you, right? God has made promises to you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He's promised you eternity in heaven with him. And nothing, nothing can invalidate these promises. Even when life seems brutal and it seems so lonely, God still says, you can trust my promises. Life's trials don't interrupt God's covenants, uh, even though it may seem sometimes like we're here on the bottom of a pit. In fact, not even our sin can, can invalidate God's promises if we've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Nothing can invalidate God's promises. Do we understand that? Nothing can invalidate God's promises. He has made promises to us. He will fulfill them. And we are children. We are fellow heirs of the promise. And that's why the covenant of grace is so much superior to the covenant of the law. Uh, grace never ends. It can never be interrupted. And that's Paul's point in verses 17 and 18. And I think verse 17 is really the crux of what Paul is talking about here, uh, saying that the law that came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified to God, by God so as to nullify the promise. Nothing invalidates God's promises. So the law was given 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham. 
And for the Judaizers, they're looking at it and they're saying, look, the law of Moses was the beginning of Israel's history when God gave Israel a national identity. And Paul says, no, that's not true. The beginning of Israel was much, much earlier, centuries earlier, when God made promises to Abraham 430 years earlier. And so uh, God's covenant with Abraham didn't require anything of Abraham. Grace is the gift that God gives to be only received. And the law came later, yes, but it did not invalidate grace. The covenant with Abraham was still in effect because God personally ratified it and promised that it would be fulfilled. So what's going on here between law and grace? Well, the law is a completely different kind of covenant, right? The law, God's law given through Moses, imposed duties and obligations on people. Like if you told your kids beforehand, we'll go to Six Flags if you eat your peas and carrots, right? That's a different kind of covenant. But the law was so burdensome that nobody could keep it. Uh, and so what happens here in verse 15, or 18 is that Paul is emphasizing the contrast. God didn't give that uh, God didn't give the blessing of inheritance based on the law because then it would no longer be on the basis of a promise, right? He'd be changing the terms of the deal. And so the covenant is based on the promise. It's not based on the law or keeping it. And so Paul is arguing, look, the covenant that God made with Abraham is still in effect today. We have this inheritance. And the inheritance refers to what God promised Abraham and his descendants. He promised blessing uh, by justification by faith, right? To everybody who believes will be saved and we're included in the family of God and we become sons and heirs. We receive everything that belongs to the father as his heirs by the promise, not by keeping the law. So think about Paul, just, I mean, just think about him devastating, destroying the Judaizers' uh, claims one by one, systematically as he's gone through this chapter already. Uh, so just think about what he said so far in chapter three. Uh, Paul insisted that the Holy Spirit did not come by the law, but by faith. And the Galatians' own experience proved that, right? That they knew that because they experienced it themselves. Uh, the law doesn't change the promise of God's grace to all who believe. We saw that in verses uh, 15 through 18. The law doesn't bring justification because no one can keep it. That's verses 6 through 9. But the law does bring a curse. So we're dealing with a completely different kind of covenant here uh, when we're talking about the covenant of the law. And so to summarize verses 15 to 18, we see that God is faithful to keep his promises, that the law which came later did not, could not, will never invalidate the covenant with Abraham that came earlier, and that God freely gives this gift of grace without regard to the provisions of the law if we will simply believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so with all that said, the Judaizers must have been exasperated, right? We can almost hear these Jews arguing, well, what's the purpose of the law then? What is the point of all of this? And that's what Paul wants to talk about next. That's the question he answered in verses 19 to 25. He says, the purpose of the law was not to save. So why the law then? It was added on account of the violations, having been ordered through angels by the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is for one party only, but God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Far from it, for if the law had been given that was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has confined everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So 
well, why the law? Well, here's Paul's answer. He names one reason why God gave the law and then two reasons why the law is inferior to the gospel of grace. So the reason why uh, God gave the law, it was added on account of violations, which is another word for sin. But, but what specifically about sin? What does on account of violations mean? Well, some people think it means to restrain violations. And that seems valid. When we see a stop sign, we stop, right? First, because we might get killed if we don't, but also because it's the law, right? We stop because uh, it's the law. Uh, so to restrain uh, violations. Others think it means to reveal violations. And that's, this might also be valid. You know, sin has existed since the time Adam and Eve, right? It's gone back a very long time when they ate the forbidden fruit. But the law makes people more aware of it. So uh, when we're uh, driving 75 down Route 75 uh, and we see the sign that says speed limit 65, well, that law alerts us to our sin and hopefully changes the course of our behavior. So it could be to restrain, to reveal. Another possibility is that it means to provoke violations. And this one is really something. This one is found uh, in Romans 5.20. Uh, Paul says the law was added so that transgressions might increase. Well, what happens as soon as we see a sign that says wet concrete? What do you want to do? You want to write your initials in it, right? When you see a sign that says, keep out, what do you want to do? You want to climb the fence. You want to go in, right? As soon as we see these signs, it, it, it just brings up something in us. It says, I'm going to do what that sign says I should not do. And so the law tempts us. It's almost like it triggers us to, to see if we'll be obedient to God's law, if we can fight down what it is that's inside of us that wants to break the law and obey what God says and comply with his standards. And oftentimes we'll fail, but the law should make us more aware of God's standards and it should make us more obedient of God's standards. Uh, so Paul probably had in mind a combination of all three of them here, but his point is that the law was not meant to save. The law was never meant to save. It was, it was enacted to make us aware of our sin and to awaken us of, of the, the, the magnitude of our sin and our need for a savior. So that's why the law, to, to uh, uh, remind us, uh, to show us our violations. And then the first reason that the law is inferior uh, is, is because of the gospel of, uh, of, of grace. Uh, the gospel of grace uh, is permanent, whereas the law of uh, Moses is temporary. So in verse 19, we see that, that the law is only valid until the seed would come, referring to Jesus Christ. So the law is temporary. Uh, Romans 10.4 says that Christ is the end of the law for all who will believe. Uh, Matthew 5.17 says uh, Christ came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the law is temporary, but the gospel of grace lasts forever. So that's one reason the law is inferior. The second reason the law is inferior is because it was received through a mediator uh, by angels to Moses and then to the people. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, in Acts chapter 7, verse 53, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2, and in this verse here, Galatians 3.19, uh, we're told that the law is given by God through a mediator to Moses and then to the people. Uh, now, we're not told exactly how God gave the law to angels and how they served as the mediator uh, of the law to Moses. None of, none of these verses describe how. 
But what we do know is that whenever uh, it goes through angels and then through a man to the people, that's got to be inferior than a covenant that is made directly from God to a man. Uh, and so when God made his covenant directly to Abraham, it shows that that gospel of grace is superior to the law. So uh, two reasons why the law is inferior, one reason why the law is given. And now we come to verse 20, which is kind of a confusing verse. Uh, now, a mediator is not for one party only, but God is only one. So this has caused confusion among commentators and, you know, the, the regular people in the pew like you and me. What does this mean exactly? Uh, well, I think Paul probably meant that, that a mediator is necessary, say, when two parties make a contract and then there's confusion about the terms of the contract or rights and obligations under the terms of a contract. Uh, a mediator can help with that. A mediator can help resolve that, whether, they're, whether it's a judge enforcing law or a mediator helping them work out the terms of a deal. Uh, so that's probably what he means by that. Uh, but when we're talking about God, and when God makes a contract, God doesn't need any help, right? He's not confused at all by terms of his unilateral covenant and contract. He knows what he has to do to fulfill the terms of his, his contract. So he uh, does not need a mediator. His covenant is unilateral and unconditional, uh, the covenant that he made with uh, Abraham. And so uh, Paul is, is explaining how, uh, over and over again, how this, this covenant of grace is superior and more long-lasting than uh, the law that Paul made, or that uh, God made. So uh, Paul's going through this, this uh, logical progression here, just uh, debunking one argument after another. And so the next thing that, that pops into Paul's mind, as he's wont to do, is to anticipate the next objection. And so he anticipates that the next objection is, well, don't grace and law then contradict each other? And Paul answered that in verse 21. He says, no, the law and, and grace serve two completely different purposes. They're both valid and they're both good, but they are fundamentally different. The law was meant to judge, to point out our sin and our need for a savior. The law has no power to make us alive. God alone has the power to make us alive. But that doesn't mean the grace and law are opposed to each other. If you could keep the law, theoretically, you could be saved by it. But since no one has, uh, the only way of salvation is by grace. And so it's all about God. It's all about God's faithfulness, not about our faithfulness. And the law makes us aware of our sin, that we'll know that we're sinners and that we have this desperate need for a savior. And once we accept the fact that we are uh, incapable of saving ourselves, that there's nothing we can do to earn God's salvation through good deeds or keeping the law, well, that should make us turn to God for salvation. That comes by grace through faith. So grace comes to impart life, but the law brings punishment and a curse. And so now Paul's going to go on to illustrate the difference between law and grace uh, using two different figures of speech. He says the law is like a prison on the one hand, and he's, then he says the law is like a guardian on the other hand. And he brings out these two illustrations in verses 23 through 25. He says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being confined for the faith that was destined to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our guardian to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So this idea of being kept in custody under the law, being confined, is the image of being imprisoned by the bars of our sin. We can't escape its power. We can't escape its penalty in our own condition. This points out our own sinful condition and our bondage to it. 
and there are no exceptions to this truth, right? Romans 3 says, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who does good, not even one. And we are on death row awaiting God's judgment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. This is what awaits all of us. The only one who holds the key who can get us out of this prison is Jesus Christ. And he does set us free when we place our faith in him. And that is the promise of the gospel of grace. It doesn't mean that we're not guilty of breaking the law. We are guilty of breaking the law, right? But God has declared us. He has said that we are not guilty. And he has given us grace because of our faith in his son. It's just a remarkable truth and a remarkable illustration by Paul to show how we are imprisoned and yet Jesus Christ sets us free. And so Paul goes on to say how the, the law is like a guardian. Uh, the, the Greek word is the word paedagogos, and it's variously translated in, in Bibles that you carry. It may be translated tutor or guardian or custodian or schoolmaster. Uh, we really don't have an exact parallel to this position in uh, English, but uh, the J.B. Phillips translation, if you have that, uh, he calls this position a strict governess. So maybe that sheds some light on it, what, what it would be like. Uh, this person, this paedagogos, would be a slave, and their charge is to guard the children from the evils of society and to give them moral training. And so these people were, were, were severe disciplinarians. They were charged with raising these children up the way their parents wanted them raised. And they, they punished the children when they did wrong. And so Paul likens the law to the paedagogos. Uh, they're the same. Both were severe disciplinarians whose function was to train and correct. There is no grace in this equation, right? There is only sin and punishment, sin and punishment. Uh, and so that's what Paul is saying here. It's like, the law is like a paedagogos. But that all changes after Jesus Christ comes. And so uh, this translation says that, that uh, we're no longer under a guardian, uh, that the law has led us to faith. Uh, maybe a better translation might be that, that the law is a disciplinarian until Christ came and we placed our faith in him. So think about God. Think about what God is like. Uh, and think about whether it makes any sense that God would withdraw his grace from us every time we broke one of his laws, right? That, that, that would not be the kind of God that we serve, thank God. If God withdrew grace every time we sinned, he would only be a God of revenge and retribution. He would be like us when we hold grudges, right? Sometimes we can't let go of a grudge. Uh, when we refuse to forgive, even though a person has asked for forgiveness, or even if they haven't. Uh, when we overreact to some minor petty transgression against us, uh, when we revoke promises uh, like Six Flags because they didn't eat their peas and carrots, right, or some other intervening sin, if this were the kind of God we serve, he would look no different than you and I look. And so we'd never be assured of our salvation because our next sin would disqualify us, right? We would soon be out of God's graces. And so praise the Lord that he's such a God of grace and that nothing, not even our worst sins, can take us out of God's grace if we are true believers in Jesus Christ. So to summarize Paul's argument in these verses uh, to the Galatians that he makes against the, the Judaizers, Paul said, look, 
I understand how they might argue that because the law came later, it might uh, change grace. But that completely misunderstands God, his nature, his character, and the purpose of the law. Just, just use your common sense. God would not uh, give grace freely to Abraham, save him, save his descendants uh, by faith, and then change the rules of the game centuries later, right? That's not the kind of God that we serve. Uh, so if we could have earned salvation or if we could have kept salvation uh, in our own power, there would have been no need for Jesus Christ to come. Grace is God's gift to all who believe by faith. In Abraham's day, grace was belief in God's promises. That's how God, uh, Abraham received God's grace. Uh, he's looking forward to the promises, as Hebrews says, right? In our day, we look backward to the promise, the fulfilled promise of Jesus Christ who has come. Grace always comes by faith. The law shows us how much we need grace. The law is designed to show us our need for a savior, but grace is God's blessing to all who have the faith of Abraham. So if we understand the difference between the law and grace, the function of the law and God's purposes in grace, I think we'll have a handle on this passage. So let's wrap it up with a couple of applications. And the first one is just coming right back to the title of the sermon, nothing can interrupt God's grace. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are safe and secure in eternal life right now. Nothing we do, nothing we do can interrupt, invalidate, or nullify God's salvation. And though we will surely sin, uh, and though we may receive God's discipline, and we may suffer consequences as a result of our sin, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. The consequences of sin, God's discipline of us, the fact that the world is in the state that it's in because of sin, do not invalidate promises uh, that God makes to us if we believe in his son, Jesus Christ. So in this world we live in now, whatever you're going through personally, whatever you see in the world and you shake your head and you can't believe this is happening, just ask yourself if you really believe that nothing can interrupt God's promises. Do you really trust that God has forgiven your sins and, and that you will not suffer the penalty that is deserved for the sin that you have committed? It's impossible to live with joy, right? If you're constantly looking back and worried about this sin or that, we have to remember that God has forgiven that. And so nothing invalidates uh, the, the grace that God has given to us. He didn't give us grace just to withdraw it every time we mess up, right? As John MacArthur says about uh, this assurance of salvation, he says, if we could lose our salvation, we would, right? And that makes perfect sense because we are sinners and we would lose our salvation if we could lose it. So your sin, my sin, is not too big for God. Remember that nothing can interrupt God's grace. And secondly, remember that God is for us and not against us. You know, sometimes we, we get this uh, mistaken idea of God that, that he's this powerful being up in heaven and he's just like looking for a reason to zap us when we do something wrong, right? That's not God. That, that completely misunderstands the nature and character of God. No one can keep the law, but that's where we see the nature and character of God fully come to light. If God were against us, he would not have sent his son to die on a cross for our sin. And if God were looking for a reason to punish us rather than save us, he would not have raised his son from the dead. So God did these things because of his tremendous love for us so that we might be with him for all eternity. And Jesus is with God right now, advocating on our behalf, uh, casting aside every accusation that Satan makes against us. We are his blood-bought saints. 
God loves us too much to let us go, and he's too powerful for anything or anyone to snatch us from his hand. So nothing, nothing, nothing can interrupt God's grace. It is a promise that he makes to us. It's not like a promise to go to Six Flags that we revoke when we have a little testy temper tantrum ourselves. Uh, He will never revoke his promise. Jesus defeated sin and death so that we can be reconciled to God forever. God is for us, not against us. Nothing ever invalidates God's promises. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible truth that Paul brings to light in Galatians chapter 3, that we are saved, Lord, and when we're saved, we are saved for all eternity. And so we thank you for these promises, Lord. We thank you that even our sin, even the worst sins that we commit, uh, cannot invalidate your promises, cannot invalidate the grace that you have chosen to give to us, Lord. We thank you for these things. We pray that we can uh, go forth from here just remembering these things in our daily lives, Lord, and uh, repenting of our sins, certainly, but not repeatedly beating ourselves up over them, Lord, remembering that you have forgiven them. And uh, Lord, that we can uh, go on and uh, basking in your grace and in your love and just do better next time. Lord, we pray that uh, these things will will stick with us. And as we uh, go out of here, Lord, that we are able to explain what God's grace means to unbelievers so that they may too experience the love of Jesus as we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.